Welcome to the Carbon mini-series within the Exploring Opportunities podcast brought to you as part of the Future Farm Resilience Support delivered by NIAB, AKC and Savills working in partnership. My name's Elizabeth Stockdale, Head of the Farming Systems Team in NIAB. Today we're going to explore the science behind soil carbon with my guest Professor Pete Smith. Welcome Pete. Hello Liz, nice to see you. Nice to see you. I've been talking about soils and organic matter and soil health throughout my whole career as a researcher and we worked together at Rothamsted over 20 years ago when we were both much more handsome and younger but we were looking at some of the same issues that we're still talking about. Can you give us a brief introduction to your background and what brought you into this study of soil carbon and um, organic matter? Yeah, I'm actually trained as a zoologist rather than a soil scientist, but I got into modelling uh, through when I was doing zoology um, and then I transferred those skills across to modelling soils. And your current roles and responsibilities include some some quite important things in terms of this carbon stuff and you've had a particular role with the IPCC. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the IPCC, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So I've been authoring for them since about 1996. So um, a number of the assessment reports and the special reports I've, I've been uh, convening lead author for those and more recently I've been involved in ITBES which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services um, which is a similar sort of um, intergovernmental panel which is looking at a wider range of issues than just climate change. Okay so that's I guess making sure that the scientists viewpoints are brought together I'm guessing there's some arguments and some discussions but then that's fed forward to government to make policies that's right right. so the scientists put it together um they put together these reports and they they try to establish the scientific consensus they pull together all the information that's out there synthesize that and come up with a consensus which is then put to the government and because they're intergovernmental panels the governments then discuss those in detail and they adopt them so it then becomes their document and that makes it much more powerful than just a report because it's then their document and they have to implement it. Let's just start with a bit of terminology I think I do it almost interchangeably I talk about soil carbon and I talk about soil organic matter they're not quite the same thing can you just talk us through how you see that? Yeah, so soil organic matter is just all the dead material that's in the soil. It's come from the falling leaves um, when the roots when the roots um, sort of turn over and shed, and when uh, when the plant dies and when animal feces go in or animals die, all of those things decompose in the soil, and they form what's called the soil organic matter. The soil organic matter is composed of about fifty eight percent carbon. So if you if you know the soil organic matter, there's a sort of rule of thumb that it's about 58% of that organic matter is carbon. So that's the reason they're used interchangeably. The reason we talk about carbon is because we're interested in carbon, as in carbon uh, CO2 uh, in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and locking it up for soil carbon, carbon sequestration. So it's in the same unit. So that's why we tend to soil, talk about soil organic carbon. Farmers tend to talk more about soil organic matter because that's the thing that gives them the fertility, but they're more or less the same thing. Okay, so we don't need to get hung up on one or the other. I guess they, when we report them or they're measured, we need to be aware though that if we see soil organic matter percentage or soil carbon percentage, they'll give us numbers that don't match that about that one to 58% ratio. That's right, yeah. 
Cool. So if we start with soil right back at the beginning, a rocky surface exposed by a retreating glacier, how on earth does the carbon get there? I mean, you've given us a bit of a clue, I think, in your description. Yeah, yeah. So um, eventually a plant plant will take hold on a rocky surface. And when that plant dies, um, the roots, uh, the roots will turn over. They'll they'll sort of integrate into the into the rock a little bit and that plant will die and it will form a, a thin layer of a decomposing organic matter. And on that organic matter, another plant will take hold. So as as the successive plants grow over generations and generations over decades, centuries to millennia, the soil gradually builds up, mixing up that bedrock material with the organic matter that's being deposited on the top as the successive plants and animals die on top of it and they'll get mixed up to form to form our soils. And on top of that, you've, you've got stuff blowing around as well, you know, so you've got stuff blowing from or, or being eroded from a uh, up a hill to down a hill, um, being blown around uh, uh, as dust, and all of those can deposit on the soil, which um, which gives it a slightly more complex uh, view than just being built up from the bottom. But generally speaking, it's built up from the bottom through the decomposition of organic matter. Okay, so we talk um, scientifically, and we do about this about lots of these biological things as cycles as, as things that go round I'm guessing there's a carbon cycle and, and that this isn't literally the same bit of carbon that we find it, it gets transformed and transported is, is that right in the carbon yeah, cycle totally right yeah so the carbon is is fixed through photosynthesis when when plants grow they fix carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through photosynthesis so that's a carbon atom coming in from the atmosphere it's then part of the the plant and when that plant dies, some of that will be transport transformed to the ground. Some of it will be respired, of course, because the plant as it's growing respires and some of it goes out again as CO2. But some of it, about 10 percent maybe, sticks around in the soil and um, and and becomes part of the soil organic matter. And then, of course, it can be washed out. Um, you know, it can be leached out. It goes into the rivers and it can go up as CO2 later. So it's all part of this great big cycle in the universe that we live in. Nothing's permanent. So I guess it's those interactions and, and cycles that you were modelling and, and trying to get your head around to describe them and then put numbers on them when you, when you first started out. That's right. Yeah. And the reason it's important from a, from a climate point of view, I mainly work on climate change impacts and the impacts of soil, soil carbon on climate change is because that interaction between the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or the methane in the atmosphere and the carbon that's in the soil, all those things contain carbon and they cycle around. So it's trying to work out how much will stay in the soil and how much we can keep in the soil to keep it out of the atmosphere where it's causing climate change. And we talk about soil organic matter and and sort of think of it perhaps as one thing, the dead stuff. But it, in terms of science, we often talk about pools or different ages of carbon or stability in, in soil. How do you see that sort of fractions or pools of carbon in soil? Yeah, well, you can either view it as fractions or you can view it as a continuum. So some some stuff that gets turned over really quickly. So the things like when plants um, sort of when when you get um, root exudates, the stuff oozes out of the roots and that's rich in sugars. That sugar breaks down really quickly. The microbes can gobble that up and evolve it as CO2. So that that stuff turns over really quickly. And then you get other bits of dead plant material that get um, absorbed onto mineral materials or get humified. That's a way of saying that they just get 
um, uh, all, all sort of like um, uh, they form complex molecules, really great big molecules that are difficult um, to break down. So either through humification, that process of uh, aggregating into big big molecules, or being uh, locked up in aggregates or absorbed onto minerals, those are all forms of carbon getting locked up for for decades to millennia. Okay, and and if we actually did a carbon age of the soil, what what kind of how old is how old's the oldest carbon? I mean, you, we've obviously got fresh stuff that landed yesterday, but yeah, but how is, is there some really old carbon in? in there soils? is some really old stuff. Yeah, so if you do radiocarbon dating, you know you're looking at in this country in in the uk we've got the peats which have been forming ever since the last ice age so we've got um uh, we got we got carbon in those those um at the bottom of those soil profiles that's going back maybe twelve thousand years so we can we can date it and we know that that carbon can could have been locked up a very long time ago especially in peatlands because they're waterlogged and the decomposition uh, is much slower in those and they can continue growing uh, year on year as long as the climatic conditions remain favourable. Okay so is that the main difference between a peat soil and what we might call a mineral soil that not just the amount of organic matter that's there but those processes that are forming and holding the organic matter in the soils? Yeah that's right yeah so you, there, we, we make most of our peatland is sort of upland peatlands um, which is sort of in very acidic and very cold conditions and that's what slows the decomposition and also very waterlogged and we've also got lowland peat soils which sort of form in fen areas so we're thinking about around around where you stay you know around around Cambridge <laughs> and the fens and those sorts of areas and there are other areas as well of course where you get lowland fens. Yeah, we're going. We're going to talk to Chris Evans a lot more about lowland peats in another podcast, oh, and I'm he'll sure he'll right. keep us right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, left to their own devices, we've distinguished peat and mineral soils. So, let's just focus on our mineral soils, those ones that are, are mostly made up of sand, silt, and clay, but with with a good mix of organic matter in them. Do mm -hmm. all those soils contain the same amount of carbon? No, they don't. Um, uh, you've got very sandy soils, which don't contain much carbon and you've got very clay soils which can hold on to the carbon for longer you know as I said some carbon gets absorbed onto the mineral surfaces so when you've got a uh, lots of mineral surfaces like in clay soils they tend to hold on to the carbon so clay soils and acidic soils may maybe contain five seven percent organic matter um, the sandy soils may only can contain about one or two percent organic matter so it can be can vary quite a lot so can we know if we make some measurements of other things other than carbon, what that maximum or potential for storing carbon is in the soil? Yeah, generally speaking, there are some metrics out there that suggest that, you know, there's a relationship between uh, the clay percentage that, you know, the percentage of clay, mineral, clay uh, that's in the soil that makes up the soil and the amount of organic matter. And there are other things like there are some special soils like the andesols, which are formed from volcanic activity, um, which also have a very high capacity to absorb carbon. So, um, but those aside, it tends to be dominated by clay and you can make a, a good estimate of how much you can hold in the soil by how much how much clay you've got present, as well as the, you know, the other environmental conditions that that soil is growing up in. I think it's one of the things that always struck me when I visited New Zealand, haven't been many times, but that those andesols behave very differently, though yeah, that landscape really. dominated by those volcanic soils in comparison to ours. Yeah, nightmare to model. <laughs> <laughs> so is there sort of 
a good level of soil organic matter and, and why should farmers be focused on carbon? Why does it matter to them? Well, the organic matter in the soil is really important because it improves the workability. It means that the soils uh, stay wetter when there's a drought, so there's better water holding capacity, better workability, um, improves the fertility because, as I said, there's, the organic matter is 58% carbon, but that also means that there's a lot of nitrogen in it, so it slowly releases nitrogen and phosphorus, so it improves the fertility of the soil as well as all these other aspects. So farmers know, you're, the farmers who are listening to this podcast already know that a healthy soil is one that contains a lot of organic matter and it supports better crops and, and, and better functionality of the soil. So when we've started to talk about soil carbon in relation to climate, what we've tended to focus on is this store of carbon or sequestration of carbon. Do UK soils in your opinion, have good potential then to still increase and store more carbon and act as that sink for carbon dioxide? Yeah, so that depends on what land use you've got. So the peatlands definitely can. So we've got peatlands which in, in when they're in good condition, they continue storing carbon indefinitely. So they'll keep building up and building up and storing more carbon. But 80% of our peatlands are degraded. So we obviously have a, a lot of work to do there on restoring those peatlands to get them in the best condition. When we're talking about mineral soils, they tend to be woodland soils and grassland soils fairly close to the maximum amount that you can store in them. So there's not very much potential to store more carbon in grassland soils and in forestry soils, but you can, of course, protect them by not plowing them up and, and not felling the trees. That's the best way mm -hmm. to do so. Croplands, on the other hand, uh, because they're they're constantly ploughed and because they're used to used to grow crops which are only there for part of the year, so you're only getting carbon inputs when there's a plant in the soil, they tend to be much more depleted in carbon. So cropland soils have maybe lost between 40 and 60% of the carbon they originally had in as a native ecosystem. So with cropland soils, we have a great potential to increase the carbon content because they've got this depleted amount so we can get them back up to somewhere near where they were before. So that, that's where we should focus our efforts on carbon sequestration. And with the grasslands and the woodlands, the main aim is to just keep the carbon that we've already got. So if we focus on, on those arable or cropland soils for, for a minute, you talked about ploughing. Farmers will tell you, Pete, there's loads of different kinds of tillage practices. They don't all just plough all the time. Is yeah. there a link between tillage intensity and how much a soil is disturbed and its ability to to build carbon, say. There is. So is, yeah. is is reducing tillage intensity a good strategy if we're looking to increase carbon? It is, but that also depends upon the soil type. So I talked to, you know, I'm based in Aberdeen and I talk farmers up here in the northeast. And a lot of the soils up here aren't suitable really for for um zero tillage. Um, you can use zero tillage and it's being used very effectively in many parts of the world and even in uh, lots of parts of the UK. But you can't just give out this blanket advice, uh, switch your farm over to no-till, everything will be fine because you can have problems with the workability and you can have problems with crop emergence and problems with uh, mould affecting the, the seeds and such like disease getting into the seeds um, before emergence. So it's not, all, it's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all recommendation. Reducing tillage intensity where it can be done, where the soil allows and where the climate allows is a good thing to retain soil carbon, but it's not appropriate everywhere. And I guess one of the main ways that carbon is added to soils is actually through growing plants. So yeah. 
making sure that plants are growing more often. So that might be thinking about the crops we're growing, but also perhaps cover crops and things also gives an opportunity to add more carbon to the system. Have you seen the, the data that shows that those sorts of changes in management system within arable systems make a difference? Yeah, they do. So so you can definitely show that at least in the short term when you add a cover crop in you, and you plough that you plough that catch crop or cover crop back in uh, in the spring when you plant your your main spring crop, um, that carbon then goes back into the soil. The, the thing about cropland soils is that when you've got a fallow period, you've got a time when you've got no carbon inputs going in from from the atmosphere and when the when the crops are very young. So one thing is to keep the ground covered all the time. You can also chop the residues, uh, the straw and other other residues and composts and mulches and put those back on the soil. That's part of what's called regenerative agriculture, as you know, uh, which is being encouraged. Um, and that's a good thing for maintaining the carbon in the soil. And there's also the, the potential in the future of uh, things like uh, perennial cereals, um, which are being developed. As you know, uh, they're not available to use yet, but they're being developed in the lab to see the potential for those. So where you don't where you don't need to plow every year, um, these perennial cereals could just just uh, keep growing uh, year on year, and that would reduce the need for for plowing every year. And there's other things like growing crops which have uh, less decomposable roots or deeper roots. So it's putting the carbon the roots deeper down in the soil, or growing roots that are just uh, more resistant to decomposition, and that could all help to improve the soil carbon in the in the under a cropland. I guess that also might have an impact in grassland systems where even though we're close to being at potential in the top soil, actually using new plants, different kinds of herbal lays or mixed species lays might actually, again, increase the depth of rooting. And, and actually, even in those systems, we yeah. have the possibility of increasing carbon storage. Yeah, that's right. There's good evidence from from experiments where they've done experiments with different amounts of biodiversity in different plots. That the more the biodiversity you've got in a plot, then the more soil carbon you get, both in the top layer and and further down uh, deeper in the soil, because you've got different um, different communities of plants which have different root structures. Some some are going deep, some are going into the middle, some are fairly shallow, and it just allows the the plants to exploit those um, uh, niches in the soil mm. and to put carbon down into those layers. So whilst you might not be able to increase it much overall or even in the top layer, there may be the possibility of increasing it in deeper layers if you're able to increase the diversity of the sward. And I think one of the, the problems for carbon is is that it's not a fixed thing, isn't it? We don't put it in the soil and then it stays there forever. It is still in this cycle so that if we yeah. get the, if we change the balance or we change our management practices, actually we can lose carbon or gain it. And it, it's a really balanced system. Totally. Yeah. The reason the reason that it's useful as a carbon sequestration, like taking carbon out of the atmosphere and store it in the soils is useful as a climate solution in the short term and to reach net zero by 2050. You know, that's relatively short term. We're talking less than 30 years away. It's a really useful thing, but it's not as useful as the sort of more permanent ones, which is, uh, you know, reducing our reliance on fossil fuels which means that we leave the car leave the fossil fuels in the ground and we don't put that co2 up into the atmosphere so that short term that short termness of the storage is a is um, a potential disadvantage compared to other more permanent forms of carbon storage but it can be useful in the medium term at least to get in us to to reaching our net zero targets by 2045 in scotland and 2050 in england and wales and, and you talk 
Yeah, you talk about um, that short term, but I think most farmers would think about your short term as being quite slow <laughs> in terms of that idea of being able to see a change in our organic matter. That's not going to be easy to measure, is it? How 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 long do you think it, from data it suggests you, you're really going to be able to detect a change in organic matter? Yeah, that depends on the variability of the soil, but it takes at least five years to measure a difference. And to measure it after five years, you need lots and lots and lots of samples, and that'd be prohibitively expensive. So generally speaking, you can only really detect a, a difference in soil carbon after about uh, after about 10 years. So it usually takes something like 10 years to detect you've got a difference in the soil carbon. Um, but we know what sort of things you need to do. We've already mentioned some of them cover crops, reduce tillage intensity, keeping the crop, keeping the, uh, the soil covered, um, improving the sward in grasslands. All of those sort of things are known to increase the soil carbon in different layers of the soil. As much as as much as they can be for a given soil mm -hmm. type, so given that we know what to do, we can have faith that that um, it will increase the soil carbon, and then we can go back and measure that and verify it in ten years. I don't think we have to wait for you. We don't have to wait ten years to pay a farmer for increasing the soil carbon. We can incentivize them based on the practices they're doing, and go and measure it to verify it after about five to ten years. Okay, so it sounds like you probably have already got some things that you would would send farmers away to do now whether it's in terms of what they measure or what they do just as we come to the end can you just give us a, a pete's top tips for for what farmers should be doing about soil carbon i hesitate to give farmers advice because they know much more about farming than i do <laughs> but but the things that we've already mentioned so that's keeping the keeping the keeping the ground covered reducing the amount of fallow periods you have between crops, using cover crops, because that can, uh, especially if you're using legumes, that can save you money um, by putting nitrogen back into the soil as well as putting carbon back into the soil and uh, making sure that you manage your soil carefully. Farmers won't need telling this, they, that their livelihoods are built on the soil, that, that comes from the, the health of their soils. So maintaining healthy soil for, for their own generation and for the future generations they pass it on to, making, making your soil healthy, making it profitable for yourself and neither exploiting it is not only good for you, it's good for the planet. So I'm sure most of the farmers, all of your farmers are gonna be doing that anyway. And I think measuring soil organic matter or soil carbon, just a good way of benchmarking where you're at and, and what you're doing. It didn't used to be part of common practice, but yeah. it's increasingly available as a measurement for farmers. And, and I think both of us would say, although that's not a perfect way of, of doing it, we can't do enough samples, but it's still a really good thing for farmers yeah, to be doing to keep an eye on. Definitely. When you're getting your nutrient status measured in the soil, get get a, it doesn't cost much more to get an additional measure of a measure of your soil organic matter content or your soil carbon. You never know when that's going to come in useful. It could be mandated in the future as part of your you know single what replaces a single farm payment mm -hmm. uh, to show that you're you're managing well. So it's good to have that baseline. And if you ever went into the carbon credit market and you wanted to sell your carbon credits, it's a good baseline to have. You have to have good baseline measurements. So it's something that's relatively inexpensive and really useful to have. Information is power. <laughs> and we're going to have a, a further chat with, with David Clark from NIAB about actually some of the practicalities and, and ways we might use yield maps to help us guide where is a good place to measure soil carbon and to link that to our understanding of soils on farm. So I think that'll be a really good thing to follow up with later. Nice. But thanks yeah. very much for your time today, Pete. Um, thank you. Thanks, Liz. Nice to talk to you.